Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. Samuel chapter 12 starting at verse 18 so that so Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel and all the people said to Samuel pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king and Samuel said to the people Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me... Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Remember again this morning together that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's ask his help as we look at this passage again together. Father, we look to you once again, Lord, even as we sang to to speak. Lord, we know that it is not your audible voice that we now expect to hear, Lord, for you have in these last days spoken to us through your Son, And we have the the word of of God, the word of Christ, given through the prophets and the apostles, Lord, now written down for us. But we know that uh, our own intellects and minds cannot, in and of themselves, perceive spiritual things, Lord. But your spirit must breathe upon it, must breathe upon us, and continue to give us insight into your word, Lord, that you would continue to, even as uh, you did for the, the... people of Jerusalem, as Peter preached, Lord, cut them to the heart. We pray that you would do so to us through your word, knowing that when you wound us by your word, Lord, you also bind us up and renew us. And we pray for encouragement and strength. Lord, help us to to be diligent, um, to heed the words even that Samuel spoke, Lord, knowing they they still ring true uh, for us today. And even the new covenant, we ask now that my words would be honoring to you and uh, profitable to your people. 
We pray for attentive hearts, and we ask this all for Jesus' sake. I pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I know we looked at uh, chapter 12 last week, but this is one of those such uh, rich passages that I wanted to take at least one more week this morning to consider Samuel's words to the people of Israel. As we look at uh, the title this morning is Seeing God's Prophet, or maybe more specifically, the the work of God's prophet. And uh, I suppose for each of you at different points in, in your life, you have faced a a task that seems maybe overwhelming. Uh, Maybe you're starting a a home renovation or a building project and you're kind of aware of what you want to do, but then the thought of beginning that is is overwhelming to you. You don't even know where to start. Which board do you take off first? Or uh, I know my wife tried to, well, she actually did accomplish it with this week with the two, three younger boys in their room. Uh, I was getting a little uh, crazy in there, and we, you know, things would go in there and, and just go missing. <laughs> we're not sure. We're afraid we're going to lose a child in there. So she uh, decided to try and tackle cleaning this, this very messy room and sorting through everything. And it can be daunting to know where do you start. And as we look at the call of God uh, upon our lives, and even as we think about this work of Samuel to to be a prophet to the people of God, uh, we may wonder, where, where would one start? What is this work that God has called us to do? And so this morning, I want to look again at the, the foundation for Samuel's work and then two aspects of the work that Samuel is giving himself to as a prophet. So we'll see the foundation of his work and then the two, the two aspects of his work this morning. Now, I know you are aware of the context here that Saul has proven himself as a king of Israel in his first great victory against the Ammonites, defeating Nahash, delivering Jabesh Gilead from the threat of enslavery, the threat of actually losing their right eye and coming into bondage. And Saul calling the, the, the tribes to join together and to go out in battle against Nahash we find God graciously grants him a victory against this enemy. And as a result, the nation is ready to submit themselves to Saul. They're ready to to crown him king. And so they return to Gilgal where they crown Saul as the first king of Israel. And Samuel, realizing that his role as judge is coming to an end, he he will no longer function so much as a judge over Israel where that becomes more of the role of the king But Samuel will continue on in his prophetic work over the nation of Israel. And so we see this very important transition at this point in the nation of Israel where the king is established. The the line of the judges comes to an end and we see this, this this role of the prophet really emerging to the forefront as the prophets begin to work Uh, alongside uh, the godly kings and even when there are ungodly kings there's the prophet of God who will come to the people bringing God's word and so we see Samuel beginning to function very clearly in this unique role of the prophet and first I want to look again I know we talked about it last week a little bit but it is worth uh, reconsidering this morning the foundation of this work 
Uh, we could imagine that this would have been somewhat discouraging for Samuel. He did not see this as a step forward for the nation, but this was a direct uh, assault on God, their king. That was a, a direct, uh, really, form of, of mutiny, if you will, or of treason against their king to declare that they want their own king. They do not like the idea of just having this invisible God who, who is their king ruling over them. They want flesh and blood. They want someone like the nations who can go out for them. And it is, in that sense, a treasonous act. And so Samuel, his message is one mingled with a call to repentance and warning. But we also see the basis of hope. And if you look um, with me in, in Samuel's message here, it seems a little confusing at first because the people are, he commands them to fear the Lord on the one hand, and we have the sign of the lightning and the thunder at a time when they would have not normally had uh, thunder and lightning, compared it to getting you know, a few feet of snow in the middle of July when it was plus 20 in the morning. Uh, something like the, this, this, this picture of uh, thunder and rain coming at the wheat harvest and so the people are now fearful that the Lord may destroy them. And, and so they ought to be. And they, they plead with Samuel to pray for them. And Samuel says, do not be afraid, which is interesting. What does he mean? Don't be afraid. They've offended God. They've, they've, been, they've, they've committed mutiny against him, their king. Why should they not be afraid? Um, and, and the basis of that is verse 22 that Samuel gives. The reason they should not be afraid that God will utterly destroy them. In verse 22, we read, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And this, I believe, is the foundation of their hope, and it is the foundation of Samuel's own ministry. This, this truth, this fact that God himself has put his name upon these people and that he is pleased to set them aside from all the nations of the world and to display his glory through them. It is because of that, Samuel says, you should not be afraid. God will not forsake himself. He will not abandon his covenant promises. The basis of true Christian hope is not in our own ability, not in our own faithfulness, but it is in the faithfulness of God to keep his covenant promises, to establish his own name, the love for his own name and glory, which we represent as his people. This was the hope, the basis of Israel. And we might think about all of the times where Israel was faithless, where they had abandon God, and yet God continually restores them and brings them back to himself. We could think even from the moment they left Egypt, and they stand at the Red Sea with the army of Pharaoh coming at their back, and immediately their thought was God is going to destroy them. He's brought them out here to abandon them to Pharaoh. And they, 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 they thought they would probably be destroyed, but God brings them through the Red Sea. Or we see as they come to Mount Sinai, their, their, adult, their idolatry as they form the golden calf. And there they prove themselves unfaithful to God who just delivered them from bondage. And, and, and yet God does not destroy them. Or we could look at the 
the, the Israelites standing at the edge of the promised land. There they are about to inherit the promises of God. They come to the land that God promised they would have. And yet as they go into the land and they, they see the powerful people there, their, their hearts doubt and they, they say, we cannot do this. God will not fulfill his word to us. And even there, God does not destroy the people. But they wander in the wilderness, again, witnessing his provision and his protection and his mercy and his grace. And time and time again, this is true of God. When his people are faithless, when it would seem that they should be destroyed, that God would walk away from them, he does not. And as we ask the question, why does he not? The answer is right here, the same answer that Samuel is giving. That the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. And because it has pleased the Lord to set aside for himself a people. This is the basis, the foundation of the hope. We can look at many other scriptures throughout the Old and New Testament that point to this same reality. The the, the basis of our hope is that we are called by the name of the Lord and he is faithful to uphold his name and his, his purposes and his own good pleasure towards us. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 48, 9, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. God tells the people through Isaiah, For the sake of my name I am deferring my anger against you. And for the sake of my praise I restrain it. Or Ezekiel twenty twenty one. God says, Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. David knew this reality in his own life, the the basis of his hope. He says in Psalm 23.3 that God restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Help me finish it for his name's sake. David understood that the reason that I know God will restore me, the reason he will lead me in paths of righteousness is for his own namesake, which we are called by. This is a tremendous rock of assurance and comfort for the people of God. Even when we know our own faith is faltering and weak, God has called us by his name and therefore will not forsake us. And even David would plead on this basis in Psalm 25, 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And when you even begin to, to pray in this manner, you realize that our prayers, we are appealing to God's own purpose and God's own heart in our prayers. Lord, for the sake of your name, establish this church for the sake of your name. Save my lost brother or sister. Save my, my neighbor. Lord, for the sake of your name, uh, restore to me the joy of my salvation. We, we begin to pray on this basis because we understand that God is motivated and compelled for his own namesake, his glory among the nations. Samuel understood this, and Samuel encouraged the people not to fear utterly that God would not forsake them, for they are called by his name. And this is true as well in the the New Testament. We see this same principle carry over. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 1.11. 
speaking to the church at Ephesus of the hope that we have. He says in Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God is doing this work in us and through us to the praise of his own glory. And we understand that God is the only being in all of the universe for whom it is right that he should exalt his name, his glory. If we do that, we we are considered arrogant and egotistical, but God to exalt his name is right and fitting because he is the most worthy. He is the most glorious being. And so it's actually loving for God to exalt himself to us For it's in him alone that we find the very purpose of our existence to worship God. Even as the the Westminster Catechism would ask, what is the chief end of man? And it is to love God and to enjoy him forever. We are made for this. And so for God to exalt his name to us, to uphold it, is actually for our good and our own joy. And not only is this... um, this picture of of God working for his namesake to his people. But we see even Samuel says, because it pleased the Lord to make for you a people for himself. It pleased him. There's a sense of, of pleasure in what God is doing. And perhaps sometimes we, we can have the picture of God that he is sort of half-hearted in this work or he's sort of frustrated or disappointed in how things are going, that he's trying to, to make the most of it, but it's really not going all that great. And, uh, and then, you know, maybe we experience that sometimes in, in our work where, uh, you know, it seems like whenever you try to work with, say, um, a drywall mud, you're, you're trying to, you have this vision of a nice flat wall and you, you start working with it and, and it just seems like everything that you do to it makes it worse. And in and and the end, you, you paint it anyways, but you're not really that happy with how it turned out. And, and sometimes we think maybe God is like this in his work that, well, he's, he's not quite happy with how things are going, but in the end, I guess it will have to do. No, that's not the picture. There's a picture in which God is, is like the, the, the great composer who has written a song with which he is very pleased. And even now, the notes of that song are being played out upon our lives in history. And it will, it will ring through eternity as a, a great symphony with which God is pleased. His pleasure is in this work. Now, of course, there are, there's aspects we don't fully understand God, knowing man would fall into sin, knowing that the devil would, 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 would raise a, a rebellion against the king, but we see God even using the sin of man, the rebellion of the devil, in his plans to bring about his own glorious name, to have it exalted above the nations. See, when we understand that evil itself exists so that God himself might conquer it by nailing it to the cross and overcoming that evil, we realize that even our sin all works to the glorious grace and fame of God. And in this, he is pleased. In your salvation, God takes pleasure. And in the work that he is doing in the church today, God finds pleasure. It's easy for us to always kind of say how bad the church is, how terrible things are going, how faithless the church is. But let us remember that there is always a true and faithful remnant which God is pleased, he is delighted in, and he himself establishes 
such a people upon the earth. There is now a church growing that is being purified and made ready for her bridegroom in our own day. And God finds pleasure and rejoices in this. Even as we read in Zephaniah 3.16, this incredible picture of God's pleasure in this work, we read, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. God takes pleasure in the work of his salvation, in the bringing about a people for his own namesake. This is a tremendous foundation upon which we can stand, upon which Samuel stood, and I believe Samuel carried out his prophetic work. And so let us ask ourselves Do we stand on this solid rock of God's purposes according to his own good pleasure that we are called by his name and therefore our hope is steadfast in him? Do we have a sense of that in our own hearts? And as we examine our own pleasures in this life, the things that we pursue, the things that we desire, you see, when you become a Christian, when when you are crucified to Adam and made alive to God by the Spirit, his pleasures begin to become your pleasures. The desires that you once had for yourself and this world and your children and your family, those things are crucified, though they still try to rise up within our flesh. They are crucified and and our desires and our pleasures begin to conform themselves to that of God by his spirit. And so we too should find a sense of delight in, in seeing the work of God happen across the world. We read of missionaries who stand fast in the face of of tribulation and trial. We, we see God's work among us as people are professing faith and they're baptized and there is growth and there is repentance. And yes, it is always mingled with struggle and, 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 and sometimes seasons of backsliding, but we see God himself is in our midst and that should cause us to rejoice. So we see the foundation of Samuel, but we also see this work of Samuel that he gives himself to. And this is... Uh, so interesting to see as we think about even the, the New Testament and how this also continues to be the focus. Samuel says in verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so we see this twofold work of Samuel, and this is consistently the work of the prophet. And this uh, is what Christ, as our true prophet, gives himself to. This is what the apostles gave themselves to. And as Christians, in a sense, we are all called to this work in some measure. That is the work of prayer and the work of teaching and instructing in the good and right way. So first, let us think for a moment about this work of prayer, which Samuel says would actually be sinful for him to cease to pray for the people. We talk of sins of commission, those things we do which violate the law of God, but there are also the sins of omission when we neglect to do things that we ought to do. And Samuel says, if I neglect to pray for you, 
I am sinning against God by my negligence. But this work of prayer is is very curious to us, especially if you affirm the sovereignty of God in all things. We affirm what we just saw as a basis of our hope that God is working according to his own good pleasure. God is working for his own namesake. The temptation for us might be, well, then if God is doing this work, then why do we need to pray? Why do we need to to partner with God in in, in supplication and intercession? And and there are two ditches here. I think sometimes uh, we are so aware of the ditch on the one side, which says that man by his own will is is able to to kind of chart his own destiny, is able to, to change things according to his own desires. And, and we want to stay away from that, obviously. We don't think that we can manipulate God or somehow, you know, bring about full bank accounts and health, wealth, and prosperity just because we pray something, just because we supposedly have faith that that's not how this works and we want to avoid that. But then on the other side, there is also a ditch which maybe we can overcorrect and, and sometimes fall into, which says that, well, God is sovereign. God is doing this work. And so I simply need to sit back and watch. And I have no role to play in this work. But that also is unbiblical and, and wrong. And, and I think even in, in my own soul, I, I sense sometimes that tension. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 brings these two, two things together. And I know it's a familiar passage to you, but Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. And so you see how Paul is saying, yes, I am saved by the grace of God. It is his sovereign election upon me that has brought me out of my own depravity taken me from the the road in which he was heading to persecute Christians. Jesus saves him, reveals himself to Paul. And and yet Paul says, as a result of that grace, I begin working and running and striving and praying. And Paul is saying, I'm working harder than anyone else. But I know it's not all of me. It's the grace of God. And these two things are, are brought together in a way that they should be in our lives as Christians. And prayer is one of these great works that not only the prophets are to give themselves to, but all of God's people are called to pray, pray for one another, even as we read in in, uh, Romans together this morning, to, to be constant in prayer. This is a work that God has said to give ourselves to. And Samuel said he would continue to intercede for the people. If you can imagine maybe... Uh, a great army that has been given indestructible shields by which they are to to advance on the enemy. And the the army is given uh, great weapons of warfare that they are to use against the enemy. But as a result, they don't stand still and do nothing, but rather with the confidence of what they've been given, they charge into battle and they trust that they will have victory. That is something like the Christian who has been given the grace of God, given this work to do. We are to take it up and we are to apply it and give ourselves to it, trusting God will use it. 
Or maybe that of a, a craftsman who, who is gifted to, to build with his hands all kinds of things. And he is given a, a workshop with, with all the newest tools. And, and, and he's given endless material. Well, he must then take that material, take those tools, and apply it and put it to work. And that is something like we are to do in prayer. We are to take what God has given. And in prayer, we are to put ourselves to work. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this. And this hit me like a ton of bricks this week, thinking about these men that we know God used mightily, but we see their their understanding of prayer. He said, um, some people think that spiritual things are dreams and that we are talking fancies. Nay, I do believe there is as much reality in a Christian's prayer as in a lightning flash. And the utility and the excellency of the prayer of a Christian may be, just as sensibly, may be just as sensibly known as the power of the lightning flash when it rends the tree, breaks off its branches, and splits it to the very root. Prayer is not a fancy of fiction. It is a real, actual thing. Coercing the universe, binding laws of God themselves in fetters, constraining the high and holy one to listen to the wills of his poor and favored creature man. He goes on to say the prayers of God's people are but God's promises breathed out of living hearts. And those promises are the decrees only put into another form and fashion. So we see the. The truth that God has decreed all things does not render us passive or inactive, but we begin to see that in prayer we are laying hold of the decrees of God, we're laying hold of the promises of God, and we're trusting that through prayer as a conduit carries electricity, through prayer God works in the world. He works in our lives, He works in our children and in our neighbors. And it is prayer that God has purposed to use. So he appoints not only the end, which is his decrees being filled out and bringing the saints to salvation, but God has purposed the means through which those things will happen as well. One of them being prayer, the work of prayer. And so I think that we could say if our theology leaves us thinking we have little need of prayer, then our theology is of little value. If our theology does not move us to action, move us to prayer, move us to take hold of this great and mighty God, then we have misunderstood something and we need to confess it to God. Like Samuel, it would be sinful for me to not pray for you. And I've had to confess as well in my own heart at times, not praying for you as I should. At times, not praying for my wife and my children. Going on in my own strength and trying to figure things out, but not coming to the Lord in prayer and just saying, Lord, I don't know. I can't do this. It must be you. And so, sorry. Um, I ask you to pray for me in that, in this work. It is a heavy work. It is a hard work. But it is something that God has said he will bless. I mean, just previously in our text, Samuel prayed to the Lord and and said, Lord, would you send thunder and rain to vindicate what I'm saying? 
And God does it. And we'd look at that and say, well, did Samuel do that? Did Samuel send the rain? No, obviously it was God. But how did God do it? Through the prayers of Samuel, God did it. I mean, this, this entire narrative started with the prayer of a woman who just desperately wanted a child. And, and through the prayer, God brings about Samuel to bring the nation back to himself. And I think of all the works that we give ourselves to, there are none harder than prayer. I mean, in my flesh, I would, I would rather auger, you know, 15 sewers a day <laughs> than then spend an hour in prayer. And I don't understand why it is so difficult other than we know that we're in this battle against our, our flesh and blood. But we are called to be a people of prayer. Consider Christ himself. If there was ever a man who walked upon the earth who did not need to pray, it would have been Christ. And yet, throughout his life, We see Jesus praying to the Father in his humanity, dependent upon the Spirit, trusting himself to the will of God. We read throughout the Gospels, like in Mark 1.35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Luke 6.12, And in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And even as Jesus approaches the cross, this this moment of of, of his grief, of his passion, he spends his last moments in prayer to God, going to Gethsemane, telling his disciples, sit here while I go over there in prayer. And we read in Luke 2.44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and sweats became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Christ gave himself to prayer. And I know that that we can't neglect our responsibilities and we have things that need to be done. But even if we're able to to rise an extra 15 minutes in the morning or half an hour in the morning and devote some time to the word of God and to prayer, I believe the Lord will be pleased to bless it. Something that has actually helped me even recently, uh, I, I don't know where I first heard the recommendation, but someone suggested that you get a journaling Bible and a plan to go through the Bible in a year. And the, the intention is to, to journal in that Bible, to mark it up and write out prayers, write out observations as you go, and then give that Bible as a gift to your children. And so this, uh, sorry, I can't remember where I first heard it, but then he, he went on to say that, well, if you have you know, five children, it's going to take you five years to do that if you go through it once a year. But that has actually been uh, something I've been trying to work towards this year and has been a tremendous help just to, to take time to, to meditate a bit more on the word, to pray through it, um, praying for my children, um, writing. These can be ways that can help us. And so I commend that to you. Um, yes, if you have many children, I think it would, you know, it's, a, it's a commitment of time. But I've seen it enough times where a loved one passes away and and the most prized possession, for the Christian at least, is not so much the, the money that would come to them. It's not so much the, the, the trinkets and the furniture. Uh, everybody wants the, the Bible. They, they, they want to see the Bible in which they read, in which they marked up, in which they wrote out prayers. That becomes one of the most precious gifts I think we could actually pass on to our children. 
And use it as a way to encourage you in your prayers and in your own spiritual walk. Prayer is hard. But we must, by the grace of God, press on into it. E.M. Bounds, uh, in his little book on prayer, he said, Praying is spiritual work, and human nature does not like taxing spiritual work. Human nature wants to sail to heaven under a favoring breeze, a full smooth sea. Prayer is humbling work. It abases intellect and pride, crucifies vainglory, and signs our spiritual bankruptcy. And all these are hard for the flesh and blood to bear. It is easier not to pray than to bear them. So we come to one of the crying evils of these times, maybe of all times, little or no praying. And I admit, as I read the biographies of some of these men and in seeing the way in which they gave themselves to prayer, I am deeply humbled and convicted. But that wasn't something that just was kind of dropped upon them from heaven as though one day they woke up and they're able to spend three or four hours in prayer. No, they, they started with the 10 or 15 minutes opportunities to pray to God. And, and sometimes those 10 or 15 minutes turns into half an hour or, or longer. And, and you begin to cultivate this communion with God. And, and this is the way in which we are to battle. We, we don't battle with, with physical, tangible Two weapons of warfare, but our, our, our weapons of warfare are spiritual. The, the prayers of the saints, the word of God. This is what we must give ourselves to. I know I intended to go on to the third part of this, and I, I think we'll close here for this morning and we'll save the rest for uh, next Lord's Day. But... Let us think about this individually, even hearing perhaps the rebuke of Jesus to his disciples. Why are you sleeping? Jesus would ask them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And we need to at times confess our prayerlessness to God, committing ourselves to press on in this work. It's a means that he's given for you mothers I know many of you are with young children and maybe it's the middle of the night and your child is waking you up and there's a sense of frustration and that your body wants to sleep. Um, but one thing I've found when, when children wake us up, there is opportunity to, to also pray in those hours. And, and maybe it's very simple prayers. Your, your mind is not fully functioning, but you can say, well, I'm awake. This child is awake. I can't sleep now. What, what am I supposed to do? And, and just take some time to, to begin praying for your husband, praying for your children, praying for your church family, committing yourself to, to use those seemingly useless hours of being awake, uh, not only to care for your child, but to pray. Fathers, Maybe it is having to rise a little earlier or even as you're going about your day, taking intentional moments to stop and pray for your wife, pray for your children, pray for your own soul that you would grow in godliness. And singleness is a actually very wonderful time to cultivate these gifts of God's grace of prayer. And singleness provides a unique time to pursue interests, to pursue hobbies, to travel and, and do many things. And, and yes, there's a sense in which many times we, you know, in singleness, you want to be married and, and you can kind of waste that time wishing it away. But this is a tremendous opportunity for you to, to grow in, in prayer and in these disciplines, 
Read the journals of David Brainerd, who went into the jungles preaching the gospel to to the natives and and would give himself at times to, to an entire day of fasting and prayer. And Jonathan Edwards, who helped care for him as he was dying with tuberculosis, wrote down uh, many of his journals and, and, and his story. And so singleness provides a unique time to grow in this. And even for you who are older and grandparents, um, there can be times when you feel your, your body is, is aging. It is maybe not able to do the things you wanted to do at one time. It's, it's uh, you know, getting weaker, and, and, and you may wonder, what am I supposed to do? What, what, what is my, my role with my grandchildren or my, my children or uh, in the church? And, and, and this also provides a season to pray. Give yourself to this work. Even as Samuel said, his hairs were growing gray at this time, and we see him interceding for the people of God. And let us in all of this rejoice that we have a faithful priest and prophet who even now is praying for us, interceding on our behalf, teaching us how to pray. Come to Christ and as the disciples said, Lord, teach me to pray. Let us go to our prophet Christ who himself is an intercessor and is praying for you. We'll close with his closing words in the high priestly prayer in in John 17. He said, verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you've sent me. I have made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We see Christ who not only went to the cross and died and rose again for our forgiveness, but says he will continue to make known his name to us and we can join him in this work in prayer and entrusting ourselves to him. Let's close there this morning. And uh, we'll have a a final song. Bow with me, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we do marvel at, Lord, your steadfast love. Lord, we find it difficult to remain patient with maybe a rebellious child or, Lord, an obstinate co-worker and quickly just, just want to be, uh, out of that situation perhaps, but we see you over 6,000 years now, Lord, continuing to remain faithful to us and to your purposes. And so we marvel at that sort of patience and love. Lord, I pray that you would help us to abide in that, in the promises that you've, you've said over us in Christ, that we would not falter in questioning, Lord, your ability to keep us and hold us fast. And we do confess as well that we often do neglect to do the work that you've called us to. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us to pray more and better, that you would help me as a pastor and elder here 
to take more time in intercession for these dear families, Lord, for our own souls and for our nation, that we might see, Lord, your mercy poured out day by day. And we do give you thanks for the many prayers you do answer and, and for the work that you have done and continue to do among us. And so we entrust ourselves to you, Lord. We thank you for Christ, our perfect sacrifice, our faithful high priest. And we know that it's in him that we stand and we rejoice in that. And I pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.